Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. Today, on our final episode of Season 1, we have a very special guest, Mr. Max Weinberg, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame drummer from Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band and the former band leader on Conan O'Brien's late night TV shows and currently performing on the Max Weinberg Jukebox Tour. In this extraordinary 90-minute interview, we discuss Max's musical career, his thoughts on music and drumming, his recollection of other great drummers, especially the late Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Max, welcome to That Said. Well, That Said, it's a pleasure to be with you, Michael, on That Said. Well, thank you. So I read an interview once where you described yourself as the guy in the back out of focus. What I'm happy to do today is bring you into focus because you've had an extraordinary career as the long-term drummer for Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, the band leader for Conan O'Brien's late night TV shows, and now performing live with your terrific new show, Max Weinberg's Jukebox. So, Let's talk about it, okay? Well, I've been very fortunate throughout my life. And when I refer to being out of focus, of course, my focus on what was happening in front and around me was always quite uh, uh, precise. But invariably, someone would take a picture of Bruce Springsteen, and I would be back over his right shoulder, slightly out of focus in the camera's lens. And, uh, but, uh, it's been, uh, when I look back at the age of 70, I started playing drums when I was five. Uh, that feeling that I got from banging around, it wasn't even a drum set, it was sticks on my bed. Uh, that is still present when I play the drums, when I sit down. Um, you know, there's a story that musicians get basically paid for the 22 hours of traveling and everything else, and they do the two-hour show for free. Uh, that's basically how I've looked at my whole career. It's why they call it playing. So I've been very fortunate to, of course, uh, uh, been with uh, Bruce and the E Street Band for now uh, some 47 years, uh, have a career in a parallel universe on TV, on the NBC network for many years, uh, and... Uh, and being married to my lovely wife, Becky, uh, since uh, for 40 years. We just celebrated our, our 40th anniversary. So um, as, I, uh, as I look back, uh, which I don't do very often, I do look back, but um, in a way that uh, in, in, in some way for me, I did catch up to a part of my youthful dreams. Of course, I really hit the brass ring meeting Becky and uh, producing uh, two wonderful children who are so far along in their careers and their uh, happiness that uh, in the end, that's the only thing that matters. Absolutely. And Mazel Tov on 40 years of marriage with Becky. So you said that you started at age five. So can you take us back to suburban Newark, New Jersey, and um, perhaps the Bar Mitzvah circuit with Herbie Zane and the Saints come marching in? Well, that is, uh, that was along the beginnings, actually the beginnings of my interest in drums. I would probably be uh, almost certainly, uh, 
be uh, uh, diagnosed uh, in the last 25 or 30 years with, as a child back in the 50s with an extreme case of ADHD. And I was a, I was a nervous child, uh, wringing my hands. My mother, who was an educator, noticed this early on and always directed me, she was a gym teacher, um, uh, to physical activity. And there used to be, and I'm taking you a little further back than, than my uh, sojourns with Herb Zane, uh, there used to be a 15-minute TV show in, I believe, 1953 or 54 that was the Xavier Cugat show. Xavier Cugat was originally a, uh, uh, a violinist from Cuba who managed to get uh, a TV uh, show with his wife at the time, Abby Lane. And he famously later in life married uh, Charo. But in this uh, band, the orchestra that he had, he was sort of the real-life Ricky Ricardo from the I Love Lucy show, Desi Arnaz. And everybody played a conga drum, including him. And he played violin as well. And when I, my parents throughout my life have told me we had one TV, which was in their bedroom, a little black and white, you can, you know, about nine inches square. And uh, it was the only TV we had for a long, long, long time. And when Xavier Kugats came, a uh, show came on, I was transfixed. It calmed me down. And my mother particularly theorized that it must have been the, the rhythmic thing that I was searching in my sort of physical, you know, anxiety and nervousness for some connection to rhythm. My father went out and bought me uh, a miniature conga drum with a white strap. I still have that drum. It's actually served as a totem for me my entire life, uh, you know, back some 63, 62, 63 years because that was my initial uh, sort of introduction and foray into drumming. I'd walk around the house playing this, you know, this thing uh, and and pretending I was Xavier Cougat. And I I can't say I could play it, but I definitely was one of those little kids who, you know, you put, uh, 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 you know, banging with you know, the classic story is spoons on a on a pot. But I had my little kunga drum, and it had a calfskin head, still does the same head. And, um, and and that started my actual interest. What really grabbed me, however, Elvis Presley was booked on the Dorsey Brothers, the famous Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey's Brothers summer replacement show. I believe it was on CBS uh, in the uh, summer of uh, 1950, I think it was 55. And... And later on in 56, he played on the Milton Berle show. And then, of course, you know, broke wide, Elvis Presley did in uh, the, the fall of 56 on the Ed Sullivan show. But we watched this summer show and Elvis Presley was on. And it was a it, it was a locked off shot. So you didn't just see Elvis, you saw the whole band. And when DJ Fontana, who was Elvis's original drummer from, I believe, 1954 to 1968, Played on all those record dates and, you know, Jailhouse Rock, Hound Dog, Don't Be Cruel. When he went into that drum roll in Hound Dog, going in out of the, uh, the, uh, first chorus, that was my call to arms. That just completely grabbed me and swept away because suddenly all the attention was on him. And I had been kind of, you know, moving my hands and arms in a drumming 
fashion on this little conga drum. So it was a long time before I got a drum set. But at the age of, I was not yet five, just almost turning five, uh, I, I, I just focused in on that. And in the 50s, and we're approximately the same age, uh, uh, almost exactly the same age, I would dare say, uh, in the 50s, you were sort of either an athlete or you didn't exist. And I was, I wanted to play football, but my, and I was good at later on kicking a football and catching a football, but my parents didn't want me to get hurt. And I'm so glad now at the age of 70 that they didn't. They were both phenomenal athletes. My father played, lettered in many sports at the University of Pennsylvania, but they directed me towards music. And it was a long time before I got a drum set. And the Herb Zane story was, uh, I must have been about seven, and I was the only boy in our family, and I was named after my grandfather, who died shortly before I was born. So I got his name. His name was Max Minlin. And he had five daughters, of which my mother was the youngest. She was born in 1915. And so I didn't have just one Jewish mother. I had five Jewish mothers, her four older sisters. And when I say that, I don't mean that in any uh, disparaging way, but I had the interests of basically a very matriarchal uh, family unit. And we were at an event when I was a little kid. My mother used to dress me, uh, you know, this week I've been, uh, 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 well, we've been talking a lot about Charlie Watts, and uh, my mother used to dress me in three-piece suits, and I was very, as a little kid, sartorially turned out. Her father dressed well. My father was sort of a fantastic dresser. It's what their generation did. So we were at this event, and, uh, uh, you know, I was just there, and my mother, you know, they had the basic eight-piece, nine-piece bar mitzvah band. It could have been a wedding or a bar mitzvah at one of the local catering halls, which actually was called the Chanticleer in Short Hills, New Jersey. And my mother went up to the band leader, who was the, I believe, the trumpet player, and uh, uh, he seemed to be the band leader, and said, my son uh, uh, can play drums. Can, can he play with you? And they were friends of the people having the party. And he looked at me, this little kid, he goes, are you kidding? And my mother, who was ever the stage mother, gently uh, said, oh, yeah, he can, you know, he can play. So uh, he said, well, young man, what, what can you play? He said, well, and I said, I can play when the Saints come marching in, and I could do a little march beat and ding, 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 ding. So I knew that song. And, and I said, and I can kick it off. Now, I don't know where I got that lingo, kick it off, but I did like a little sort of Gene Krupa-y rat-tat-tat intro uh, this was all very organic and I hadn't been taking drum lessons at this point. And there's a wonderful video out at the moment of this young girl. I think her name is Nandra, who is a wonder kind on the drums. Well, I sort of was that. And this is back in 1958, I believe. I still didn't have a drum set and I was still playing on my sort of army cot bed. And, uh, but when I got on the drums, I kind of instinctively knew what to do, and I played it, and it went over like gangbusters, as you can imagine, this little kid going up there. And I was fearless. I was fearless behind the drums. And if anything, that's been a hallmark of my, you know, career in drumming, that, you know, whatever else is going on, 
when I'm behind the drums, I mean business. And uh, he got such a kick out of this, Herb Zane, that uh, somebody recently sent me, if you can believe it, a picture. I was much older. I was probably 13 or 14 uh, playing at one of his dates with my little rock band. But I played with him off and on until I was about 14. And he got such a kick, he said, uh, well, I'll use, I'll use Max. Uh, he can learn a song or two. And I'll use him as a special added attraction at my dates. So he paid me 50 cents, a dollar, you know, so instead of, you know, uh, very, uh, several things came together in my family to be able to allow me to focus on being a drummer uh, for hire. And, uh, 50 cents, you know, you could, you could go a long way in 1950, 58 on 50 cents. But my father, who was ever the attorney, said, well, I'm that 50 cents. You have to take out at that time half of it for taxes. Okay, well, I'm not paying taxes. I'm, but I'm 25, 20, 25 cents. But the idea was if you're going to make money, you have to be responsible with it. So you take that out, and then you take out some savings. And uh, there's, a, a, I believe, an apocryphal story in my family that my first words were due diligence. And that's how it was raised. And um, so I'm, I'm a bit of the different drummer that you always heard about. But Herb Zane was our local uh, Essex County guy. And as a matter of fact, he's mentioned prominently in all of Harlan Coben's uh, books, his Myron Bolitor books. He writes sort of, you know, thrillers and dramas. Uh, paperbacks and, well, now hardbacks uh, and uh, paperbacks. But he grew up in Livingston, New Jersey. Har- Harlan Coben did, so he mentions Herb Zane. So that was, what was interesting about that was I didn't initially, you know, I played, I could play what they called, the rock beat in those days was called later on the twist beat. But everything in the early days before the twist, which was, I guess, 61 or 62, was pretty much swing-based or Latin, you know. So I learned how to play a cha-cha, a merengue, a tango, a Dixieland tune, a Broadway two-step, long before I ever learned how to play a rock beat. And that served me well in the ensuing career because I was what they used to call a legitimate drummer, where, you know, you might not be Buddy Rich, but you can play a little bit of everything and, and keep it together for the band. And, uh, uh, you know, eventually I played as the drummer with Herb Zane, but I then, uh, you know, I, I was a rock generation guy. And there's a picture of me literally taken, well, it was taken in October of 63 with my four-piece band. And we were based on basically Al Hertz band. We were a Dixieland band and our, our uh, trumpeter was the front guy, and he was still one of my best friends, Douglas Katz. And um, then uh, what happened to me was, you know, I was doing these gigs and playing, and I was known as, you know, Max the drummer. I had a classmate in my homeroom, uh, a young girl whose family was going to, and this is kind of an important part of my background, she was going, her father was going to London on business uh, Thanksgiving week. And we were friends. And they left on uh, November 20th, 1963. 
19, November 22nd, Friday, November 63, I was scheduled to play at the school dance with this band. And of course, we all know what happened on November 22nd, 1963. In any case, my friend came back the following week with a record called, an album called With the Beatles. Nobody knew, I didn't know who the Beatles were. And, and we were at a party at her house. You know, we're all 13 years, 12, 13 years old. And um, uh, the, I remember hearing Please Please Me. And I was a big Everly Brothers fan because I had two much older sisters. And so we had a lot of 45s in our house. And they sounded like the Everly Brothers. That was in the first week of December, 63. So in January, you started seeing all this publicity. The Beatles are coming. So nobody knew who the Beatles were, but I knew because this friend of mine brought this record back. But it was like, for my generation, I'm sure you as well, uh, at your age, uh, that appearance on February 9th, you know, television was so different back then. You didn't see, you know, you were lucky if you caught news on TV. News on, on television was 15 minutes at 6 o'clock. So, you know, the whole pandemonium when the Beatles landed on February 7th, uh, I wasn't aw- really aware of that. I mean, it was in the newspaper, but I didn't really read the newspaper. But then everybody watched, of course, always watched Ed Sullivan. And suddenly, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles and my life changed because yeah. I'd already been drumming and, and I went immediately to Ringo Starr as, wow, he's doing what I sort of can do. I, well, I guess I can do that. And that just sent me off on this. Some would call it a dream. In reality, it was kind of a fantasy, but you never know. If you work hard and put in the time, fantasies can become real and you can catch up to part of your dreams, which which I did. Right. And Ringo was, you, you talked that DJ Fontana, but really Ringo was your aha moment as, as, as much as any, anything else. And I really believe that he set the paradigm of an equal participant in a compositional band. When the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, and I was looking at the old tapes of um, Milton Berle and, and, um, Elvis and others, they, their drummer was always on the stage flat behind the lead singer. You couldn't even see DJ Fontana on many of these things because he was right behind Elvis. When the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, he was on a really high riser. He, he was very evident. Um, and, you know, sort of almost saying visually, this guy is an important part of our band too. You, you need to see him. Um, and I thought, for you, that must have been also in, instructive because the only other guy in our generation, and you're right, you are 29 days older than me. You're a kid. Yeah, exactly. The only other, we had the Ventures and Wipeout, but the other band that was important at this time was Dave Clark and the Dave Clark Five. And if you look at the early setups of him on television, they played with the drum up front and the band members behind it. So all of this sort of converging in, in, at age 13 and 14, when you're sort of at your most impressionable, I think, had to matter a lot. Well, you know, I had been, prior to the Beatles, 
uh, I was uh, one of the guys uh, that I knew was slightly older than me. He was a big Beach Boys fan, and he took me. He was he took me uh, to see the Beach Boys in September of '63, and the Beach Boys, of course, uh, was interesting because they they sort of physically in their appearance came off like the Kingston Trio, which wasn't an accident. The striped shirts and the white pants, and you know, we had just passed through the huge Hootenanny folk. Uh, revival. Elvis was in the army. A lot of Elvis um, wannabes came up uh, during that. They filled the vacuum and uh, then they made some great records, but they weren't Elvis Presley. Uh, so it was a bit of a wasteland. And Chubby Checker had the hit with the twist. And if you listen to those records, the rhythm sections were incredible. These were jazz musicians who were uh, playing rock sessions rock and roll sessions uh, during the day, playing their jazz shows at night. So the Beach Boys, the focus of the Beach Boys, if you can believe it or not, was Dennis Wilson. He was the best looking. You know, there were the four of them across the front, but he was on, uh, he was always on a riser behind the rest of them because he was the Beach Boy. So, and if you look at uh, Gene Krupa with uh, Benny Goodman, he was prominently displayed so the history of the drummers in the back but featured actually goes back, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, my first became aware of it, you know, much later, uh, Chick Webb in the 1930s, the Chick Webb Orchestra, who had this, you know, like a Keith Moon type drum set, and they would wheel it on. And he, uh, you know, he was Buddy Rich's favorite drummer. So the band leaders knew that if you had a hot drummer, you wanted to showcase him. Also, the Beatles, uh, what's funny is uh, when you look at, there are great books out now, most of the time when they were on tour, he wasn't on a drum riser. He was on the stage with the rest of them. And, you know, because it costs extra money to build a drum riser, and there are usually other bands uh, on the show. There were other other drum sets set up next to his. So, but the, the Ed Sullivan show, what was brilliant about that was the iconic stage set on that first appearance on February 9th, 64. It had these arrows, very geometric, very, very Saul Bass, mid-century modern uh, uh, graphic design, and it had these arrows pointing in from the sides, uh, emphasizing the four guys. They were dressed alike. Well, that wasn't unusual. What was really unusual, of course, was their hair. And... um, and, and Ringo was on this beautifully designed, specially designed drum riser. When I did, you know, many, many, many years later, when I got on television on the late night programs, we had a drum, a, you know, we modeled our drum riser on Ringo's drum riser. It wasn't a rectangle or a square. It was round, mainly because, as I've, and I've talked to Ringo about it, it took up less space. And it was visually arresting because the circles were a, uh, a design element. Uh, Saul Bass was the great, uh, you know, both industrial and, uh, theatrical designer of album covers and movies, Psycho and, 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 uh, movies like that and, uh, very influential. And I'm sure it came from that. But yeah, he was, they were a four piece band. The first time I saw Elvis, as I said, it was a locked off single camera and, you know, it was very grainy. I mean, the t- TV reception is, it was nothing. 
you could, you know, to my eyes, you could almost barely see them, but you know, they had one camera angle. So it was four guys up there ring. You know, Elvis was the front, Scotty playing guitar, Bill playing bass and, and DJ in the background on the floor. I've actually, uh, have a picture of me playing that exact drum set at DJ Fontana's house. That's another story, but Ringo, and I say this in the big beat book that I wrote in 1981, Ringo did for drummers in the sixties, what Gene Krupa did for drummers in the thirties. Uh, he basically made the drummer a high priced guy. And by that, it wasn't just, uh, economically, it was, it put the focus as an equal member of the performing unit. And, you know, uh, I have a theory that the term combos, you know, before rock and roll bands were, uh, uh, you know, the Beatles were so unique on so many levels. They wrote their own material. That was unusual. They looked unusual. They were inc- incredibly polished. And if you notice, they played the Ed Sullivan show and they're very cool. You know, they're very laid back as they're playing. Two nights later, they played at the Washington Coliseum, a live show, and they're going crazy. So they instinctively knew, they had done so much TV, they instinctively knew that on TV it magnifies you. You don't have to be histrionic. And they were only 21, 22 years old. It's incredible, the maturity. So immediately everybody, you know, who had these ventures, safaris, instrumental bands, the surf bands, you know, in 62 and 63, they immediately looked for singers guitar players who could sing, and it was literally overnight. I remember uh, Monday, February 10th, I told the guys in my little Dixieland band that I'm going (laughs) in another direction, and I went out looking for guitar players, and I found a guy who was in, I was in seventh grade, he was in ninth grade. We had no bass, but uh, two weeks later, I was at a, my friends, our rabbi's son's bar mitzvah in February of 64. And he had a friend who lived on his block who was invited. He played guitar. So I, well, and he was my age. He was, uh, you know, a couple of months older than me. And okay, now I got two guitar players. We didn't have a bass. Well, he had a friend who was quite a bit older. And he was this other, you know, he was three years older than us. And he had a magnetone guitar and a magnetone amp, which was made by Sears. And it was probably 20 bucks. But you could detune the guitar to an uh, almost, not quite, but almost an octave lower. And you could get it to sort of sound like a bass. So now we had two guitars, you know, a, a jury-rigged jury rig bass and me. And immediately we started playing uh actually, there was a short-lived genre of doo-wop guys who picked up instruments. So you might have a song called I've Had It. Or, you know, we did a probably a miserable version of Dion's The Wanderer. That was so, you know, you would never attempt a Beatles song. I don't know any bands back then who could actually figure out how to play a Beatles song except their covers like Twist and Shout or Money by Barrett Strong, which were staples of sort of, now they call them garage bands. Back then, they there was no uh, adjective. It was just, you're in a band. And as I said earlier, combo comes from combination. And I've always loved that term because it was a combination of uh, musicians, 
in their instruments, but also the combination of personalities. And, uh, you know, a true band is always going to have power centers. And the Beatles were a true band. Uh, and like any band, any democracy struggling to produce, uh, you know, you've got your more forceful leaders and you've got your responders, uh, but everybody has a say. And that was quite different in a lot of ways that had gone on before. Uh, the Ventures, who were the great hit maker, surf, rock, instrumental bands, uh, they were a band, but they didn't sing. And it's incredible that they, you could have worldwide success as an instrumental group. And that was a sort of slow, up to February 9th, transfer of the instrumental groups and the doo-wop groups, which were a cappella singers melding before the Beatles happened. But then when the Beatles happened, suddenly everybody just laser-focused on, you know, the instrumental part of it and the vocal part of it. I always said when I was a kid, if I could find a group of musicians who could play their instruments like the Ventures and sing like the Beatles, we would make it. You know, when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, you think you can conquer the world, and which is a good thing because it fuels your motivation, your uh, willingness to spend, forget 10,000 hours, 100,000 hours learning your instrument, learning the business. You know, recently I've been going through my uh, archives and I have these contracts and uh, publicity flyers that my father gave me the template for, and I would sign them, uh, you know, uh, dear so-and-so, um, may I introduce myself? I am the drummer and business manager for New Jersey's premier youthful rock and roll combo, the Epsilons. We are, uh, and I would describe them, and I would offer our services uh, for your, uh, uh, for any occasion, uh, perhaps a sweet 16 or a bar mitzvah. Please call the undersigned. Uh, <laughs> you know, my father's an attorney. And I've got copies of these letters. I had a little portable tape, uh, typewriter, and I would solicit people. And he taught me marketing. And, you know, if you're going to be serious about this, you've got to approach it like a professional. And my mother's thing was, you know, as I started to mature, you know, when you show up at a show, this is way before I had any success. You shave, you dress up, you're on time, you be professional, and, you you know, you do more than they expect. And then on the other side of that, and if it's from 8 to 11, my father showed me how to write in a bonus structure. So if you wanted us to play the 11.15, I had a little codicil that said um, uh, overtime rates will be, uh, you know, $10 per hour or any part of same. <laughs> and this is the training I had. Uh, by the time I met Bruce and the East Street Band, uh, I'd been playing what I consider professionally for 15 or 16 years. You know, in other words, getting paid for it, trying to get better. The Beatles, uh, of course, you know, what was so cool about that and being that age, I'm sure you relate, is that, you know, they made it so look so easy that, well, I can do that. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm as good as that guy. I mean, you know, in my, in my youthful, uh, you know, naivete and, uh, uh, but that, you know, before the real world sets in, you know, 
I had my beetle boots. I had my wide whale corduroy pants. I was skinny as a rail. I probably weighed a hundred pounds. I had my black turtleneck and my brown suede jacket and my beetle haircut. And, uh, you know, of course I had the black horn rimmed buddy Holly type glasses, but I was the first guy in my area to kind of, you know, in my, in, in South Orange, New Jersey, South Orange and Maplewood to, uh, to kind of like, uh, uh, pick up the, the English thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you just talk about yourself and describe your Natalie attired, um, persona. And we've been talking about early influences on you. And before we turn to the E Street Band and, and that career, I, I want, we can't not stop for a moment in talking about influences and talk about Charlie Watts. So can you tell us about, about him? You, you, in an article that I read, uh, an interview you gave for The Guardian, uh, you, you said of Charlie that he is not just a drummer, he's a genre. Yeah. And perhaps you can tell us about, well, you had a very close relationship, a family relationship with, with, with Charlie Watts and his family, but perhaps you can talk about Charlie and his drumming and the importance of him, because he was really a jazz drummer, dr- drumming on the ones and the threes, and influenced you uh, enormously, it seems, and, and stylistically. Well, yes, it's a monumentally sad time now. We're, uh, you know, just a, almost a week into uh, the news, and, uh, uh, you know, there's so much to say about Charlie Watts. Uh, with respect to drumming, uh, Charlie uh, was an interesting uh a character, a seminal character in rock and roll music because he did have and admired, he had a jazzman sensibility and admired the drummers of the 30s, 40s, and early 50s. Chico Hamilton was his big main influence, but he knew all the, he knew the drumming of all these people. And he was two years older than Mick and Keith, approximately. And Bill Wyman was yet another year or two older than Charlie. So, and he was a wonderful graphic designer and he was working. He was working steady as a, as a, a commercial artist and loved jazz. So he often said that he was sort of, you know, he had the soul of a jazz drummer trapped in a rock and roll band. Yeah. Well, yes, it happened to be the greatest rock and roll band for a number of reasons, not just because of the music, uh, you know, but for their longevity, uh, for their impact. Uh, Charlie understood organically the role of the drummer, no matter what else. No one ever got hired, except Buddy Rich, to do a drum solo. You're there to support the band. You're there to smooth over the rough edges. The drummers that Chico Hamilton, uh, sorry, that Charlie Watts admired, like Chico, Philly Joe Jones, Joe Jones, Sonny Greer, the list goes on and on and on, uh, did that for their bands. When it was their time to shine, uh, they pulled it off, but they were, uh, you know, most people don't know. Charlie's main model was a drummer who tragically died, uh, not, not long after he was 30. His name is Davy Tuff. And Davy Tuff was, uh, one of the, one of the biggest things he did was he was the original drummer for Woody Herman in the forties. And Davy Tuff, when you talk to, and I have in the past, and many of these drummers are, are, are gone now, but I've talked to Buddy Rich about Davey Tuff, Joe Morello from the Dave Brubeck Quartet, 
Mel Lewis, you know, some of Charlie's heroes, right? Davey Tuff was everybody's favorite drummer for his style and the sound of his drums. He made them sound like the wind and whether it was low or high. So he wasn't a technician, but he had such an impact. And he's definitely not a name that, you know, I think, you know, most people of a certain age would know Buddy Rich from being on the Johnny Carson show and, you know, some of these. But known to drummers, Davey Tuff was uh, the cream de la creme. And Charlie, he was Charlie's favorite drummer, one of them. And But he, but he was sartoriously, splendiferously dressed. And if you look at Charlie Watts, and then look at Dave Tuff, there was a physical resemblance. So, you know, Charlie was an outlier because he, you know, was very open about his sort of sardonic kind of half-teasing, uh, you know, disdain of rock and roll in general. And uh, uh, I remember we were playing in uh, uh, London in uh, the uh, 80s, and I invited he and uh, his wife Shirley uh, and some friends to our show. I think we were playing Wembley Arena or Wembley Stadium. And he demurred. <laughs> but he said, it would be lovely if I could get his daughter, who was a teenager, I guess 16 or 17 at the time, and her friends a ticket. So he had no interest in seeing us. And he'd rather be with his Arabian horses or, you know, reading a book, uh, uh, picking out clothes. And, and, you know, he was so charming that I wasn't offended. And I said, I totally get it, you know. Uh, 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 rock and roll wasn't his thing, although he appreciated and absorbed and internalized the total uh, uh, vocabulary of rhythm and blues, blues and rock and roll. So, Charlie, when I said he was a genre, when I was a kid, you'd look at, for people, uh, Village Voice was a, it was called an underground paper at the time. It was a, published in Greenwich Village. And I guess you could call it kind of a subversive at times, uh, uh, newspaper. It wasn't a handout. Um, you paid for it. Jules Pfeiffer was their political cartoonist. They had an incredible section in the back, which by the way is the way I met Bruce Springsteen years later. But when I was a kid, all the musicians read it for the public notice music. And it was about three or four pages long of ads. And invariably, every other issue, you would come along more than one ad that said, wanted Charlie Watts-type drummer. So when I say he became a genre, he was. Everybody, every drummer knew exactly what that meant. What that meant. You know, simple but not easy to do. You know, Charlie will go through a song like, uh, the perfect example is Jumpin' Jack Flash. Now, we've all heard that at uh, dances, weddings, bar mitzvahs, corporate events for the last 50-something years. And invariably, the drummers play it wrong. Uh, there are no drum fills in that song. It's strictly groove and beat in the very specific kind of uh, behind-the-beat way, which is where the one and the three really dictate the time, the downbeat and the backbeat is slightly delayed, which when people talk about Charlie's groove, the great drummers, whether it's uh, Charlie, uh, Al Jackson, uh, who was the great Memphis soul drummer from Stax, uh, drummers of that ilk, Roger Hawkins, uh, 
uh, Ziggy Modelesti from uh, uh, New Orleans, Earl Palmer, Hal Blaine, what they did was they delayed the what they used to call the afterbeat just a millisecond, and it made the music sit up. I say it made it sort of prance. It's something that I noticed in my analysis when I was a teenager and in my 20s of what made certain records pop and certain records not. And very often it was this feeling, uh, certainly you listen to James Brown records, that that funk, that came from the placement of the downbeat, the number one beat and three, and the backbeat, number two and four. And what it turned me on to was the drumming, the beauty of the drumming and the real art of the drumming was the space between that one and that two and how the drummer artfully, whether knowingly or just organically, uh, deals with that space. There are drummers who play very on the beat it's very, and it can be very exciting. But you want that tension between the other instruments. We do this in the E Street Band. Bruce, for example, loves to feel like I'm pulling back, uh, not dragging. It's not, you're not playing slow. What you're doing is you're creating this, this natural musical tension. And that's where the excitement lays. That's why, in my view, in my humble opinion, the classic records have lasted. It's a big element of those classic res- records that, uh, and of course, you know, there were a lot of drummers on, you know, on the garage bands, uh, as we call them, the frat rock, the Kingsmen, and the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, party songs, Louie Louie. Well, that wasn't necessarily an objective, but Charlie did this naturally. And it's all about understanding the role of the drummer, which he did, and he and Ringo particularly, uh, did uh, better than almost anybody else. Yeah, and Ringo, in part because he was left-handed, so he had a little bit of a delay. Uh, he was playing a right-handed kit, and he was a left-handed drummer playing with his hands in a matched position as opposed to an unmatched position. So he had a funny sort of delay in his style. Well, the, the, interesting you mentioned the match grip, which classical people call the timpani style. Uh, the, the, the most well-known jazz drummer in England when they were teenagers was a guy named Phil Seaman. And he was Ginger Baker's hero. In fact, Ginger Baker was an acolyte, uh, almost a disciple of Phil Seaman. And he was a bit of a tragic character and uh, a bit of an uh, unhealthy, habited character. But he you'd see him on TV occasionally, or if you were into jazz, trad, they called it, uh, in some cases, uh, he played match grip. And uh, it's interesting, Ringo didn't take drum lessons. Jazz players typically play with what they call military style, which is, you know, people call it palm up where the hands are different, and that came out of marching band where the the snare drums, the marching snare drums were tilted. So you couldn't play with the same grip in both hands. You had to figure out how to get your hand over this tilted rim. Ringo was self-taught. If you give a child a pair of drumsticks, they will hold it match grip. That is the most natural way to to address a drum. Uh, They'll hold it the same way. And you have to be taught the other way, the military way. And drumming came out of the military, and it was really used as, uh, you know, call to arms. And there are uh, 26 rudiments that make up all of drumming, 
that if you study it, I have, uh, uh, you know, there were different what they what they call count-offs for different military maneuvers. And this is going back to the 1600s. And, you know, of course, the drum is the oldest instrument, whether it was a log played with a branch. Um, cymbals uh, originally were used to alert uh, both military sides of impending something. So it's incredible to me how the history has morphed. Ringo, of course, you know, uh, particularly in the early days, took so much heat. Ringo is... Ringo is one of the most astounding drummers on record that you'll ever find because he was the best song drummer. He just figured out the perfect stuff to play all the time. And I've often said that drummers, you know, there's a certain amount, there's definitely a lot of skill. There, I'm sure there's a bit of destiny, but, you know, in my own personal case, you know, how many lifetimes can you go through before you bump up against a Bruce Springsteen, who's an originator, a creator, a songwriter. So there's a lot of great drummers out there. I've had a wonderful platform to use my ideas and my abilities through the years, uh, coming on 47 years, I guess it is, uh, to advance his agenda by what I can do. And, you know, what we do, me, Charlie, Ringo, uh, you know, the rock drummers, uh, uh, as they said, some people have observed, uh, uh, it's simple, but it ain't easy. And Charlie Watts was the master of that. There's only one Charlie Watts. And he'll, never be, he'll never be replaced. Our good friend Steve Jordan, you know, when I heard the news that Charlie was, uh, uh, you know, before he passed that he was ill, that, uh, you know, what do they do? Well, you know, Steve Jordan, an unbelievable drummer, the perfect, the perfect uh, uh, individual to uh, sit in that drum stool. He's not replacing, but he's sitting in that drum stool and he'll do a phenomenal job. Uh, so the music can continue. In fact, I, I, I heard you say once in talking about Charlie Watts' influence on you that if you listen to Street Fighting Man and Born in the USA, you see uh, sort of like homage um, in your drumming on that song to Street Fighting Man. Very similar. Um, uh, I don't go so far as to say you might find theft. <laughs> well, I, I prefer so, homage. Well, certainly homage. And I had been listening to my own sort of comp tape of Stone's greatest stuff, you know, to really, and I did, I did that, for, you know, I do that generally. I mean, uh, I have taken from all the great drummers, as all the great drummers have taken from preceding generations of, uh, of, uh, of them. And I take from all drummers I see. I mean, I've seen it. I saw a kid playing literally on pots and pans and ash cans in Kingston, Jamaica, and he was about the funkiest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, it was all, it was amazing, and I've learned from that. So Street Fighting Man was something I was listening to a lot, and it was one of those throw-off songs of Keith, throw-away songs, really, where I'm not even sure they used a real drum set. But it was so tough. And when you're in the studio recording, at least me, I don't, you know, I'm looking to do what needs to be done for Bruce's songs. And I think we're all great assimilators. And I'll hear a song like, for example, there's a song, Girls uh, in Their Summer Clothes. Well, I heard that and I said, well, that's a Beach Boys song. That's Hal Blaine. And of course, you know, this is the, 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 
telepathy and the sixth sense that drummers in bands, you know, it's like a pitcher and a catcher. So I'll reference, you know, well, that sounds like, it sounds a little rhythmically like this song. So I'm born in USA. We have been doing it in a variety of different uh, iterations and arrangements. And, it, and this one particular night, about three o'clock in the morning, we were just, you know, we, re- we recorded from usually about six o'clock to about four or five in the morning. In those days, uh, we've made it more reasonable as we've gotten older. Uh, Bruce went out into the uh, main room and started playing this kind of chugging rhythm. And he got into a groove, and I went, I was in the same room. It was just the two of us, and then everyone else was in isolation booths. And I went in, and I just started playing the drums, and it reminded me. You know, I sat down, and I was suddenly like, okay, I'm going to be Charlie Watts on this. This is inspiring me to play like that. And he did this one particular thing, which is three eighth notes, pam, 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 before a, 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 a change in a verse or chorus. And Charlie would do odd, uh, he would do his fills sometimes in odd places. And a lot of times, and he told me this, sometimes because he didn't know where they were going. So he might have thought they were going, for example, from an A section to a B section. And maybe he went early. So those kinds of, you know, brilliant mistakes, that's what you hope for. You hope for that spontaneity where, you know, you're not quite sure of where it's going. And that was what it was on Born in the USA for me. So I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best homage impression of how, what would Charlie do? I've asked myself sometimes, what would Ringo do? What would my dear departed friend Hal Blaine do? Hal Blaine was the phenomenally successful, ubiquitous uh, studio drummer uh, from Los Angeles who, when I was about 30 and I I met him, uh, turned out to be 50 of my favorite drummers on, on records, whether it was the Birds, the Beach Boys, the Mamas and Papas, the Fifth Dimension, Johnny Rivers. You name it, he played on everything out of L.A. He and Earl Palmer, the great New Orleans drummer who moved to uh, Los Angeles uh, and uh, uh, in the mid-50s and became, uh, you know, phenomenal, uh, uh, phenomenal drum- session drummer. I think one of his first songs was The Righteous Brothers, You've Loved That Love, You Lost That Love and Feeling. And um, so I would make these references, and I've done it before. You know, we have a song called Darlington County. Well, you know, you're hearing it here. That's honky-tonk women <laughs> for me on the drums anyway. You know, the riff reminded me. The riff is the generally repeating, usually guitar uh, motif that sets uh, the tone for the song or, the you know, the melodic thrust. I guess in our case, uh, most famously, the Born to Run, down, 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 down. That's a, that's a riff. And you build off of that. And when we played Darlington County uh, and recorded, and it was a generally one, two, three takes maybe. Then you pick the, the best one. And, uh, you know, I want to have that tough, tough uh, Charlie Watts sound. And I can tell you, I emulated it. I may have paid homage to it, but I had never equaled it. Mm. For me, the my favorite of his was, I don't know why either, but it was Get Off of My Cloud. There was that one that one uh, staccato part of Get Off My Cloud that I always like listening to of, of Charlie Watts's. 
Well, get off my cloud. The first time I saw the Stones was on November 7th, 1965, at the Mosque Theater, it was called. It's now called Symphony Hall in Newark, New Jersey. My friend and I took the bus down there, and Get Off My Cloud was, at the moment, was the number two song on the top 40 radio stations. And what was interesting about that, it was the first song they did where the drums start the song. And he played that kind of, uh, you know, very interesting beat, boom, bop, boom, boom, bop, bop, boom, bop, digga, digga, ding, ding. And that became a rhythmic motif in that song. He does it over and over again. And Charlie uh, was a very, very knowledgeable musician. And if you listen to, say, Ruby Tuesday, there's this single stroke roll he does every time it goes into the chorus. So he was a, he produced his drum parts. He composed as he's, as they were either rehearsing or figuring it out. He was very adept at coming up with things that would be recognizable. Listen to satisfaction. There's no, there's no drum fills in the entirety of satisfaction. It's simply him keeping a quarter note time on the snare, hi-hat and bass drum. The syncopation comes from the tambourine part. And I am a fanatic. When I play that song with my jukebox band, which is all audience requests, and they ask for that, that I get someone out of the audience and I teach them the tambourine part because the drummer doesn't go bomb, 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 bomb. The tambourine does the bomb, bomb, bomb. Charlie's just, as they say in the trade, chopping wood, and it gives it that drive. And uh, it, it, since 1965, absolutely brilliant to do that, you know, that he had... It's, it's understandable, but he had the restraint that has, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of great records is, you know, you can certainly have Keith Moon, who was a complete opposite, uh, who uh, was just completely spontaneous and propulsive and bombastic and explosive all the time. Keith Moon was actually the lead instrument in The Who, where Pete Townsend uh, was more of the, he anchored it down. He and John Entwistle anchored it, where Keith was the guy who, quote unquote, went crazy. I always found it interesting that Charlie Watts, Keith Moon, and Ginger Baker all were born and grew up in essentially the same area of London. Uh, and uh, Charlie was uh, born near Wembley, uh, where Wembley Stadium is. And they were all sort of from that area. And it must have been something in the water. I guess. So, talking of Ginger Baker, can you take us back to April 1974 and your audition with Bruce Springsteen? Well, actually, I had been at the time playing in a variety of bands. I had been playing in um, the Broadway show Godspell as the pit band drummer. And uh, that was actually kind of fun because I thought it would be an entree into uh, Broadway as a musician. Plus, also, there was this big hit record day by day. And when you played that in the show, it, it was the one sort of number that got that, you know, immediate applause. And uh, I had actually never quite experienced that before, playing on a hit record. I didn't, I wasn't the drummer on that, but I played, you know, a hit record. And um, I was in a band. I was going to college. And during uh, July of 1974, uh, in April of 1974, in my college, Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. I was living home at my parents' house. 
uh, Bruce Springsteen was playing a concert in the cafeteria. And I had a friend who had a local sort of college band, and he was kind of a James Taylor-ish singer-songwriter. And he asked me to, he wanted to put a band together. To, he got the gig to open for Bruce Springsteen. Now, I didn't know who Bruce Springsteen was, but um, and there was no money in it. But, you know, he had some original songs. And we opened, uh, it was uh, just before my birthday in uh, April, and we opened uh, to Bruce in the cafeteria. And what was interesting was I started to feel ill during our set. We played about a half hour and, and I was going to leave right after our set. And Jim, uh, the leader of the band that was put together said to me, you got to see this guy Springsteen. He, and he had never seen anything like it. This was April of 74. He's amazing. I said, nah, I really feel, I feel horrible. I've got to go home and go to bed. As it turned out, uh, uh, the next day, I had an emergency uh, tonsillectomy, so I really was sick. But he he, he just he said, "Don't miss this opportunity. You got to see this guy. This guy's going to be big." And I was just not paying attention. But okay, I watched the first song. So this guy comes out. This African American guy comes out, sits down at the piano, and plays this long, extended soliloquy. This. Uh, you know, improv, what I thought was an improvisation, and it went on for about 12 minutes. And, uh, like, after four minutes, I said, uh, well, that's interesting. You know, he, Bruce Springsteen, uh, you know, I didn't know he was a, a black guy. You know, I saw the band set up, but David Sanchez, his pianist, came out first and played piano. And then, and then when he got done with his big overture, Bruce came out and the band filtered out. So I didn't see that. I left halfway through that David Sanchez brilliant opening to New York City Serenade. I had my tonsils out. And um, I was in a band called uh, High Point, which was, was we, and we played clubs. We played sort of traffic music and Jethro Tull and a little more progressive rock and uh, you know, Jeff Beck group. And uh, we were rehearsing. We had two keyboard players, and one of our guys, the singer, went to the bottom line in July of 74 and said, I just saw this guy, Bruce Springsteen, and the E Street Band. Now they were calling it Bruce Springsteen the E Street Band. And this, this, this was the most amazing show I ever saw. And I said to myself, Springsteen, I, that's got to be the same guy. I hadn't heard any of the music. Uh, but, and he was going on and on about this. This is a new direction. So it turns out that, he made his first two records in the town next to where the basement we were practicing in was located. And they knew the engineer, this gentleman uh, from Israel named Louis Lahav. So uh, they knew who Bruce Springsteen was, and uh, I didn't. And at the time, I was very into sort of, you know, Mahatishnu Orchestra, Billy Cobham, Tony Williams with his Lifetime uh, band and, uh, you know, more, a little bit more jazzy, a little more, you know, progressive than the rock that I was naturally good at. But what seemed to be happening was, you know, chops players and people who really could, you know, be more like jazz, but, you know, rock jazz, jazz rock, which started to come in. So I didn't really pay much attention. And then we had two keyboard players. One of them auditioned. Auditioned, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the piano player left of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He didn't get it. The other one went in, and he was very close to Louie. 
And uh, the guy who, uh, this guy, Brooks Arthur, who was a very famous engineer uh, in the 60s in New York, uh, did all the girl group records and became a record producer. And he owned the studio up there, 914. He auditioned uh, about three weeks later and found anybody. And he came to rehearsal and he, and he, you know, he said, well, I auditioned, I didn't get it. And it's not really my thing anyway. But he said, Max, you know, they're, they're still, they're looking for a drummer too. I said, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm playing in the Broadway show. I'm going to college. Uh, I'm in this band and we're, you know, we're playing clubs and wherever we can, I can do both. Uh, and everybody seems to audition. So, you know, why the hell not? I'll, you know, he gave me the ad. He literally took, took the piece of paper out of the village voice and gave me the ad. So I called up and made an appointment. Uh, you know, I'm a drummer, et cetera, et cetera. And I was living in this one particular uh, keyboard player's father-in-law's basement in the corner of the basement on an army cot, which I was used to. And, uh, I was driving a yellow gremlin, <laughs> which was the first new car I ever had because it was the cheapest car I could ever find. I remember the payments were $18 a month. And, you know, it just gives you an idea of what was going on back in 1974. And I'm playing in Godspell. So I go, so I come home one night from playing this band and on my bed is a piece of yellow, uh, legal paper with some calculations on the top. The father-in-law was a scientist. It was a piece of scratch paper. And now at the bottom it said, Max, call Springstein, S-T-E-I-N. Then it had the guy's name, something about an audition. So I arranged for this audition on a Monday night when the show Godspell was dark. And this was now the second week of August, 1974. And I didn't want to bring all my drums. So I just brought a bass drum, a hi-hat, and uh, the snare drum. And I wasn't trying to make any statement, but as it turned out, <laughs> the band and Bruce was very impressed because, you know, it was the time of the eight tom-toms and the seven cymbals, and, you know, the drum soloist and the ad said, famously, wanted drummer, no junior Ginger Bakers, which was kind of a snarky way of saying, you know, check your ego at the door. Uh, and I got that because I had been a working drummer for leaders for 16 years at that point. So I had a lot of its practical experience. And when it said no junior Ginger Bakers, that spoke to me. And I knew that the guy wanted an accompanist. And it said Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis. And if you look at a lot of the old uh, footage of those guys, the drummer basically had a tom-tom, a snare drum, a bass drum, and a cymbal, and a hi-hat. So, you know, I didn't bring the tom-tom. Figured, well, if you're playing Chuck Berry music, I can do everything on a bass drum and a snare. I can do everything on a snare drum. And it made a, a as it turns out, an extraordinarily minimalist statement. Like, wow, this guy must think he's really good. He doesn't even bring a whole drum set. And I was a very, very good improviser, very good at taking direction. And that first night, we played for three three hours. And it's a, it, for me, it's a, it's a wonderful story because you just never know when a connection is around the corner. I didn't know Bruce. I didn't know any of his songs. I left before I got to see him play. Um, I did remember that we were wearing the similar clothes. We both had jeans on and jean uh, shirts, cut-off shirts, you know, with stat, with snaps. And, and, and I had a Fu Manchu mustache, and he had a scraggly beard. 
And he asked me where I was from, and I said New Jersey. And at the time, it was very popular if you were a metropolitan area musician to say you were from New York, even if you were from New York, Connecticut, or New Jersey. But I said New Jersey, and he smiled. He goes, oh, that's, that's good, from New Jersey. And I had no idea what that meant. Because I you, you, were, you were North Jersey. He was Central Jersey, right? Well, yeah, North, Central, North and Central, but in the ways geographically North and Central, but philosophically North and South, mm-hmm. and, and particularly musically. And the North Jersey bands played top 40, while the South Jersey bands, Central Jersey, right over the Raritan Bridge, which is that, that sort of uh, elliptical-shaped bridge, that's where the dividing line is. They had played blues and some original stuff, you know, more heavier music. They had a little more freedom than we did up in North Jersey and the Newark and Passaic and Hudson County, uh, you know, uh, those areas. So, so we played. And one of the things he did, he did it with everybody, was they had this song by Fats Domino called the, uh, Let the Four Winds Blow, which was a very fast, up-tempo, the way he did it, uh, shuffle with a lot of accents, very similar in format to Rosalita, uh, the way he plays Rosalita. And it was a big showstopper. And I was following along pretty good. But at one point, he did this signal, like when an umpire would go, you know, safe, right, at, at, at first base, safe signal. And he wanted everybody to stop. And he made it really obvious, like cut, stop. And he said, nah, half the guys got it. If you didn't get it, he did it again. If you didn't get it that time, you didn't pass the audition. And everybody, good or bad, got exactly a half hour. Now, I, I knew all this, you know, 20 years later. Uh, I didn't, I never knew. Because 20 years later, after the band had broken up, I asked him, well, what made you choose me? And he tells me the story of the little trick and the audition. And then there was a long pause. And suddenly, he threw his arm out in a 45-degree angle, like a James Brown kind of hit-me thing. Now, I had a lot of experience. He didn't know this, but I had a lot of experience playing with dancers and singers and using the drums to accent stage business. And this goes back to my training as a so-called legitimate drummer. And when he did that, I hit a snare shot. And out of the 60 or so drummers that auditioned, I was the only guy who hit that snare shot. And that's what got me in the E Street Band, that one single snare shot, because I was paying attention. Yeah, he, he's very complimentary of you in, in Born to Run in the 2016 autobiography. He writes, there are 20,000 people all about to take a breath. We're moving in for the kill. The band all steal on an iron track. And that snare shot, the one I'm thinking about, but I haven't told or signaled anybody outside the on-fire little corner of my mind, is about to be the one I want, and there it is. With Max at my back, the questions are answered before they're asked. Incredible compliment. Yeah, that was a lovely passage when I read it, and and that really distills the relationship. And it's not, you know, it's not uh, unusual. Um, uh, Frank Sinatra had it with um, uh, Irv... uh, uh, his last name escapes me at the minute, but his longtime st- stage and studio drummer, um, who was also Dinah Short's drummer, they, you know, the drummer and the singer have to have a simpatico. It's like a pitcher and a catcher. And my job, my job on stage with Bruce is to make his job easier. 
So I, you, the, you know, the best drummers and the ones that I've always admired are able to drive the bus, lead the band. They really do lead the band by interstitial things they do, by the sort of, you know, uh, you, you have to feel it. And, you know, I've been playing with Bruce, you know, off and on for 47 some odd years. And uh, it's a sixth sense. As a matter of fact, when he's down to a wet T-shirt, he has a muscle under his left um, scalpula uh, muscle that when he's about to do something will tense. And it's a little tell that I don't know what he's doing. And you can't anticipate what he's doing because if you anticipate it, you'll make the wrong move. You have to absolutely just be in the moment. And one of the books that helped me when I was a young drummer to be able to do that was a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And there was another book called The Inner Game of Tennis, how the idea is to slow down the time, thereby speeding up, and I don't mean the tempo, but slowing down the time, the space in which things happen, so uh, you're able to increase your reaction time. So it becomes almost instantaneous. And that's my job in the E Street Band. I don't have to remember chords, but I have to be 110% uh, hooked into and uh, uh, supportive of what Bruce might do, not just what he is doing. Right. You said, I, I think, once I heard you say that during the show, and I watched, you know, in preparation for our conversation, I watched a lot of video. Um, and yeah. it seemed to me that throughout these shows, you never take your eyes off of Springsteen. You're always watching, you know, maybe for this muscle um, twitch or this, the safe signal or the pointing in the 45 degree angle, but you're singularly focused. Your eyes are singularly focused on Springsteen throughout. Yeah. Well, he's got a line, you know, in one of his songs, Blinded by the Light. Mama always told me not, not to look into the sights of the sun, but Mama, that's where the fun is. But Bruce is the sun. And I don't take my, I did take my OS off him once in 1975 at the bottom line, uh, at one of the 10 shows we did there over five nights. I did. I took, I was distracted. I took my eyes off him and I made a, what would have, what could have been a life and career changing mistake. And, uh, and you know, a lot of eyes were honest. We hadn't really broken through all the biggest rock journalists were there at the time, critics and, the record company people, and I, you know, if the drummer makes a mistake, the train stops. You know, you blow a chord, you play the wrong melody or the wrong key, you know, you can kind of fix it. It gets lost in the mix a little bit. But I, and there's a picture of me that I have of the very moment where it's taken from the audience of Bruce obviously upset. Me looking like the famous clown Emmett Kelly, the sad clown, and Steve Van Zandt sort of on the side, uh, you know, stifling a laugh, <laughs> which is perfect. And, uh, you know, it was a long time ago, but I went into Bruce's dressing room afterwards, you know, which was about the size of a broom closet, and we were talking about it, and he was very cool. And he said, you know, I've been in the band nine months. It's wild up there. You got to watch out for the curves. And I got it. And I didn't need to be twi told twice. So that was in 1975. Here we are in uh, 2021. I have never 
ever taken my eyes off of Bruce again, except one other time. In 2012, at Hyde Park, for about 300,000 people, we're playing. And I look over the corner, over by the monitor uh, station, and I see standing behind the monitor man, Paul McCartney and his wife, Nancy. Steve Van Zandt had invited him to the show. And, you know, there are moments where, you know, I can look to give a signal to somebody who's supporting me. But, you know, actively playing, I don't look. I, I focus on Bruce. You know, it's like a basketball player. Watch their hips. They can't go anywhere without their hips. And you see these little telegraph things. Everybody does it. Little hitches in a batter's batter's position. So, whoa, whoa, Paul McCartney's over there. Unbelievable. Long story short, Bruce invites him on stage. I'm on my, you know, four-foot-tall drum riser about ten feet behind him. And we go into, I saw her standing there. So, I'm, I'm looking at the back of Paul's head, and he's got the long hair, beautiful hair. And if you ever saw the back cover of the album Hard Day's Night, the front cover is the four faces. The back cover is the four of them from the back. And it looks exactly like that back cover. You know, and in those days, you buy an album, you pour over everything, the liner notes, the, the pictures, every little detail. And so, you know, Bruce is playing with him, Paul's singing. And even when people have sat in with me, I don't take my eyes off Bruce, sat in with the band. I watched Bruce. I could not take my eyes off the back of Paul McCartney's head. He's only 10 feet in front of me, and I'm on this drum riser. We're playing. I saw her standing there. And for that two minutes, I am Ringo Starr on the Ed Sullivan Show. It's a fantasy, literally a fantasy come true. And... I couldn't believe, you know, I, I just lived out every young drummer's fantasy of a moment playing with the Beatles. And that was the, you know, I played with, I played, I was very fortunate to have played with Ringo, with George once or twice, uh, you know, several times with Paul. Never got to play with John, unfortunately. But, you know, in my own way, I've had that Beatle experience. And it was the only other time I took my eyes off of Bruce. So I have this question written down in my in my notes. I I take notes. It's the lawyer training in me. And the question I've written down was just how cool was it to play in the E Street Band and all these venues and have 80,000 people at MetLife Stadium singing back to you or 300,000 people at Wembley? Can you talk about sort of you from the audience you see the band, but can you talk about it from the band Looking yeah. out into the, because uh, it must be something to behold. It, well, it's a dream come true. It's an awesome, you know, it's the best seat in the house playing the drums up there. And, you know, what's interesting about playing stadiums, it was a much bigger jump, um, emotionally and mentally from playing sort of 5,000 seat theaters and war memorial auditoriums to playing arenas, you know, like a basketball arena, uh, than, going from arenas to stadiums, uh, because they essentially look the same. It's just multitudes of people. I'm up there to do a job, and I don't take my eyes off Bruce. And, of course, so the, so the audience to me, uh, you do see individual faces for sure, particularly if it's, you know, if you start, like in Europe, if you start in the daytime or anywhere, if you start in the daytime and then it gets dark, uh, you will, you know, at some point, You'll be, I'll be looking beyond Bruce and I'll see people as a, as an entity. Um, I do allow myself the luxury of during the song, 
uh, Ramrod to, which is one of my favorite songs to play, uh, of looking around. And it is an awesome sight. It is a sea of humanity. I miss it. Uh, I hope we can get back to it in some fashion, uh, not just the E Street Band, but everybody. It is a communal experience. And one of my favorite moments is when, particularly when we're playing and it's dark, uh, Bruce turns the, every light on, the house lights, during the song Born to Run. And I once asked him why he did that, and he said, because I just want to be the guy with the guitar in the middle of these 100,000 people. And so it's not, that is the ultimate community. And, you know, he once said to me, do you ever think about the word concert? I said, well, yeah, you're you know, playing a concert. He goes, well, true. But actually, you're in concert. You're in each other's lives at the moment. You're in concert. You're in sync. The best shows are where you're in sync. And it, it ceases to be a show, although there is a, it is show business and it is entertainment. There's a third element that comes out of it that is a magical experience. But one of the things with the E Street Band and Bruce is that you will never see a bad show. You may see shows where your favorite song wasn't played. You may see shows where uh, uh, you were tired and we were tired, but you'd never notice it. You will never, you will always have an exceptional experience because we take each show literally one time, one show at a time, one set at a time, one song at a time and make it the best we can. If that sounds Pollyannish, it's not. It's an ethos. And it was directed by Bruce by leadership, not by any kind of, uh, dictum you know the one dictum he had was our mission is to give people more than their money's worth and they should walk out of this concert transformed in some way because we are in concert so you know i happen to be the guys on the drums it's the reason i use the same by the way the, the reason i use the same drums uh that i have for years and years and years is the same reason charlie watts uses the same drums they're totems when people come early and they see the drum set, that's part of the show. You know, if you change drums every tour, so I want people to, uh, to there they are. There's the drums. Like when I went to see this, last time I saw the Stones, and I meant Charlie and I were talking about this uh, backstage. It was in Newark about three years ago, the night before Bruce played Tumbling Dice with them. And uh, it was just the two of us in the hallway. And I said, uh, you probably don't, recognize this, but, uh, 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 you know, we're about a half a mile from where I first saw you in 1965. He goes, well, actually, I did know that uh, because my uh, my sister uh, is married and has lived for 40 years in Tom's River, New Jersey. So I said, you've been to Tom's River, New Jersey? He goes, all the time. You know, and uh, I think it was his sister, certainly, so they said, I can't believe it. Yeah, drive down the Garden State Parkway, get off, and he knew the exit, which is kind of a funny Jersey thing, what exit are you from? He knew it was like exit 80 or 82, Tom's River exit. And there they, you know, Rolling Stones are at Prudential Center when, you know, some 50 years before, I saw them play at, uh, you know, with Brian Jones, the original band, and five other bands. They played for a half hour. And they happened to be great that night. And uh, it was a transforming experience again because, you know, 
they're the greatest rock and roll band for a number of reasons, not the least of which is through the ups, the downs, the incredible highs and lows. They managed the Rolling Stones to work it all out. And if you talk to each of them, a lot of the credit goes to Charlie Watts. And uh, uh, so, you know, we celebrate his life. We we are, uh, I believe all of us who are close to him are, you know, of course saddened, but we're also, rather than that be the lasting legacy, we're just so delighted that it happened at all and for so long. Right. And, and I think you're absolutely right that he is the, the heart of the band. And I think Springsteen, again, I'll, I'll read you from Born to Run, recognizes the same about you. And he says, the soul of dedication and commitment, each night in the midst of the continuous hurricane of our, our sets are designed to be, the sheer physical pressure of three hours of nonstop steamrolling rock music lies upon the shoulders more heavily than any on anybody else than on Max. Yeah, that was great to read too. That's uh, you know Bruce is a, a wordsmith for sure, and well, that's the job, you know. So whether it's me or anybody else, that's the job you must embrace to do it well. And uh, you know, it's an interesting thing to be seventy. And last time we played, I was, uh, what, 65. To be 65 and to be on the drums and both feel that pressure to be excellent, to strive for excellence, and to also feel like you're 12 years old. <laughs> you know, it's a funny combination. And athletes don't feel it generally because they don't, they don't have the length of careers that performers do if you're lucky enough to have it. They do certainly feel it when they're playing that, you know, uh, it's all that pressure, but it's also something you did as a kid. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I'm built for it, I guess. Uh, I've, I've, you know, Bruce and Steve Van Zandt and John Landau, uh, very much so invested a lot of time, energy and wisdom and, 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 uh, um, education in me to help me become the drummer that I had the potential to be. This was a learned experience for me. Also playing on television for 16 years was a tremendously educational experience in many ways. And we don't have enough time today to talk about that. Perhaps we'll do this again. I would uh, love that. But, uh, you know, that was uh, also extremely pressurized. And you never know when you walk in in the morning what the uh, – you know, what music you're going to have to play. It was all charted out. So to me, it's about, it reminds me of Liam Neeson in Taken, where he says, you know, I have certain skills. Right. Well, I have certain skills that I've developed, and they've served me well to be able to serve the leaders, whether it's Bruce, Conan O'Brien, to be in service of helping them propulse themselves forward. That's the idea. Yeah, one one or two last things, and then we will come back for, for part two, because I would like to talk about um, the Conan O'Brien show, because you once famously said that Ed Shaughnessy, who was Doc Severinsen's, um, in the drummer in Doc Severinsen's Tonight Show band, you said that he had, like, the greatest job going, and then and, and, and you got the similar job. But the, the one thing I wanted to talk to, if we can, in, in, in 
before we close out is, and you talk about in service of the community in concert with the musicians and the audience. But the one thing I think that is the greatest tribute to that concept and to your um, musicality is the 2014 Award for Musical Excellence category, which was that which got the E Street Band inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that must have been something. Well, that was a thrill, of course. Uh, that's quite an honor. And, uh, you know, I'm a big uh, uh, fan is the wrong word, but I guess I'm sort of an amateur student of John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy. And I can remember uh, a line that went something about using all your abilities along lines of excellence. Uh, and, um, you know, he had a lot of great, because he was so well-read, he had a lot of what they would call sound bites now, but that and, you know, grace under pressure, courage is grace under pressure. And I internalized those as a young kid, as a 10-year-old and uh, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. And uh, it, it, um, uh, it was, of course, bittersweet because Clarence Clemens and Dan Federici weren't up on that stage with us to uh, to receive that uh, um, recognition, although they are with us on stage every single night we play, and most definitely they are. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was nice. Um, you know, uh, I, I must say that one of the greatest things in my career that was completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, a validation in another area, a completely parallel way to being in a rock band was having my name in the same sentence as Doc Severinsen, as one of the seven, only seven band leaders uh, of NBC's Tonight Show. You know, for a while it was called the Jack Parr program, but it was the Tonight Show, and there have been seven band leaders on it from the beginning. And um, I used to be able to name them all, but I know, you know, of course, you know, Wynton, I mean, uh, Brantford, excuse me, and... Uh, uh, Kevin Eubanks uh, and myself, I guess seven or eight, I believe. And, you know, that was a big thrill because he was my hero when I was a kid with my friend Douglas Katz, who's, who we used to sit in his father's two Eames chairs in their den. Uh, he was the trumpeter in my first band. And when we were in junior high school and high school, we, you know, I'd go over there on a Friday night, stay up late and watch The Tonight Show. And I used to say, wow, that would be the greatest job. You're on TV, which, of course, you know, the TV, as it did then, as you know, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was the only, you know, you had four channels. You're on television. 80 million people are watching you, and or some, some such number, and you do it every night. And, you know, uh, I didn't know, of course, what went in to doing that. So to end up as the band leader, music director of The Tonight Show, that's something I never, ever, I never had the skills until I accidentally bumped into Conan O'Brien uh, uh, on the street in New York and somebody had given him a late night television show. And I realized now it wasn't an accident, it was destiny. And he needed somebody like me. He certainly didn't need a rock drummer, so I had to invent myself. I had to reinvent my persona. So the only thing I knew, basically... Uh, about television drumming was Ricky Ricardo, uh, 
the swinging bands you'd occasionally see, and, of course, my hero, Buddy Rich on The Tonight Show. So I said, okay, I'm going to – I'm not, and I could never be Buddy Rich. There was only one. But the sort of, you know, swinging, smiling, grooving, you know, hip guy uh, uh, in, with the white drum set, I'm going to be that guy. So, I, you know, I'm an amalgamation of all my favorite entertainers and uh, 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 the people who I've integrated. As Bruce said in his book, one of the great things he said was, I found a place where, and musically, where Buddy Rich, Bernard Purdy, and Keith Moon intersected, and I made it my own. Yeah, it's a great place to, to be. So tell us what, what's coming up next. Do you, do you, are you going on tour with um, Max Weinberg's Jukebox as scheduled in September? I think you open up in Atlanta in mid-September. Are you going forward with that? Uh, well, yeah, I wouldn't characterize it as a tour. We go out for a few days. I come home. I play about four to five times a month. Uh, they're all very, uh, uh, as, as COVID protocol awareness as you can. Everyone wears masks. Uh, generally, at these venues, all the stage crew are vaccinated. I am a heavy proponent of that. I just got my third shot, my booster shot recently, because I qualify, and I think everybody should. I think they should just uh, uh, feel very strongly about that. But um, we've invented, uh, created, because my show is all audience requests, and generally uh, people would just call them out, or I'd go out in the audience. You were, I think, at one, and you saw that. Well, that was the last one where I'm going to the audience. Now we're working on a QR code that people uh, who buy tickets, we have their emails, they get a QR code that they can uh, use during the show that shows up on an iPad for me, and they give their name, where they're from, and the song they want to hear. So we've figured out how to limit physical contact. And uh, I believe very strongly in that. So all the venues, promoters, and facility managers going forward, you know, we must play. After all, if you don't play, uh, you lose the ability. And what happens is you lose it slowly, and then all of a sudden you can't play anymore. And that has happened to a lot of people. So that that's not going to happen to me. I will be playing in some place until I physically can't get up on the drums, and so I don't lose, even if I'm not working as a drummer, I just don't want to lose the synapses that make drumming instantaneous for me, uh, because that's what show band drumming is all about. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. And the one thing that you can always be sure of, for example, when you're on stage with Bruce Springsteen, you can always be certain that you can never be sure of what he's going to do. Mm. You know, Bob Dylan was asked once, why is he perpetually on tour, which he took great offense at. And he said, I'm on tour because I'm a musician. That's what musicians do. Why don't you go ask the people who aren't playing, why aren't they playing? And so I think apropos to your point. That's exactly the point. And uh, he's absolutely right. You know, he, he turned from folk singer to uber star to troubadour. You know, you blow into someone's town, you change their life to whatever degree you can in two, three, four hours, whatever it is, and then you blow out and you leave a part of yourself behind. Yeah. The the one nice thing about the jukebox, or the, I loved the jukebox show. I loved you um, taking requests. And as I said, I requested a Dave Clark 5 song because I thought that's the 
best drummer. Although, for you, I guess you had Dino Dinelli, who was a New Jersey kid who played um, in the Rascals, right? And for me, growing up in Great Neck, we had Joe Butler, who was a local, you know, kid who made who made it good. But going to the jukebox show, what was such a lift for you, I could see it in, in your eyes, is when Allie, your daughter, uh, you called her up on stage and, and, and she sang with you. And I've seen you play also with Jay, your son. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's got to be an incredibly compelling uh, uh, moment. Oh, without a doubt. Not just forever. Uh, Allie and Jay are both wonderful musicians. Allie, of course, is a journalist and uh, never wanted to be a professional musician, but really, you know, she studied, she went to a high school where she, high school majored in piano. And she's in, uh, you know, uh, she can't play as much as she used to, but she keeps her hand in. She was been, she's been able to have perfect pitch and sing since the day she was born. That first scream, she was, she was, you know, that <laughs> I often tell people her, Allie's first scream was Janis Joplin in Peace of My Heart at the end of that song. And she sang it with us that night. And uh, so, yeah, that's a thrill for me, uh, to, uh, 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 have my children, uh, be on stage, uh, with me. Um, uh, they actually have played with Bruce together at the same time when Jay, my son, substituted for me with the East Street Band and Allie got up and played accordion. So yeah, it's a family thing and it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, my wife Becky and I are just so delighted that they have found, um, things in their lives that turn them on as much as what turned us on. And, uh, you know, we never took a vacation without them. And when we went on tour to Europe or wherever we went, we took them with us. So at young ages, 9, 12, through, you know, teenage years, and still even to today, we've done that. You know, they'll come out individually generally because they're busy when they can. And, uh, you know, they had that experience of the great museums of the world and meeting people of different cultures and, uh, and languages uh, from the time they were children. And that has uh, uh, that presented an opportunity and created the opportunity for them to become world citizens. And in their work, uh, particularly Allie, that has given her an empathy with uh, uh, the world scene that uh, is quite unusual, I believe, because she traveled everywhere, mostly mostly through Europe, uh, but on her own, you know, throughout uh, Asia and uh, you know Australia, uh, you know. They haven't been to Africa with me, but, uh, uh, you know, it's something that as children they were exposed to that now is, 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 is foremost in their life and what they do. Yeah. Max Weinberg, you're an American treasure, and I'm very, very grateful for you spending all of this time with me on That Said today. Well, I've had a pleasure, Michael. It's great. you got a great show, interesting questions. You know, as Bruce often says, uh, one of the reasons he likes to go to therapy is because he gets to talk for, at length about his favorite subject, himself. So uh, I've enjoyed uh, talking with you and uh, reminiscing. I don't think of these subjects on a daily basis. Uh, so it's it's fun to kind of revisit the, uh, you know, the sort of arc of my life and career and, you know, being married for 40 years and having stability. It's another thing that Charlie Watson and I related to was – he got married in 1964, so he was married for 56 years, and um, that was the most important thing to him, his, uh, his family, his, uh, his daughter, his two grandchildren. 
It really was. And, uh, you know, of course, his uh, sartorial splendor. There's an incredible picture online of him at the, and Shirley, his wife, at the Ascot races. And only Charlie Watts could wear what he's wearing that day. And he, you know, he looks, they should really put a, a portrait of him in Windsor Castle because he looks, you know, in the last 15 or 20 years of his life, he looked like he was descended uh, from uh, royalty. And uh, in, a, in a very true way, he is the epitome of rock royalty. Yeah. Classy, classy, gentle, kind, studied, studious, and unbelievably talented. In the New York Times of August 29th, which is today, on the second page of the style section, there's an article about Charlie Watts's style, his clothing, his looks, and everything you're talking about um, described nicely. Well, yes, and I'll leave you with this. Charlie, as I mentioned earlier about his wardrobe in the dressing room, I mean, in his uh, hotel room, Charlie, typically before a show, you'd see him in sort of a tracksuit. And it was always with uh, this Rolling Stones tongue logo. And it was kind of like a warm-up breaker, uh, windbreaker, you know. I used to have him at Adidas. Uh, it wasn't a brand. It was custom-made, of course. And something like, almost like ballet shoes. And I can remember the last time I saw him play. It was in Newark. He was wearing that when he walked on stage with a, a yellow uh, T-shirt underneath it. And because he never... Very rarely, except in the early days, wore a tie and jacket playing with the Stones later on in life. But he was the first one on stage. Got a huge ovation. He's, he was standing at the drums. He took off the the windbreaker, and he very carefully folded it. He didn't just toss it. He carefully folded it and handed it to his assistant. And then he sat down and played the drums. And it was so cool. It was classic Charlie Watts. You tell a story. I, I, I keep saying thank you or, and time to go, but there are so many stories. You tell a, a wonderful story of being in his hotel room, watching him unpack um, his clothing and then put it into the dresser, all neatly folded. I think you responded to that by saying, in all the years I was on tour, I don't remember ever folding any of my clothes ever. Never took them out of a suitcase because you're going on to another – and. Another, another city, you know, so take out what you need and travel light. And, uh, uh, that was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And I've actually, uh, uh, you know, never seen anybody do that. Use the actual bureau in a, in a, in a, in a uh, suite. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was really something. All right, Max, I'm going to say it again. You're an American treasure. Thank you Thanks so much for taking all this time with us. Well, it was my pleasure. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. With appreciation to today's sponsors, Fish Tank PR and OnStream Media. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. If you're listening to this Compro Biz podcast, you probably work in PR or hire PR firms. If either of those things are true, then you're probably used to PR firms over-promising and under-delivering, spending more time on messaging and agendas than on results, drafting long, unproductive emails. Fish Tank PR is different. 
Smart, results-oriented, putting our clients and people first. Google Fish Tank PR to learn more. Hi, my name is Barry Spector, co-founder of the Museum of Public Relations. Please join me and hundreds of others from around the world on September 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern for our fifth annual Latino PR history event. Our keynote speaker will be Maria Cardona, one of CNN's top political commentators. She and a dozen other top communicators will be talking about the rising influence of Latinos in media, marketing, and PR, and how they are impacting the worlds of politics, healthcare, and the economy. Learn how you, too, can make a positive difference in society through communications, media, and PR. Sign up at compro.biz or prmuseum.org. See you on the 21st.